Good morrow to you all. You have fallen on bad times. Brought to you by the Royal Holloway Shakespeare Society. You join me, Theo Dudridge. And me, Lynn Biles, as we bear some bardy truths. Hello everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Bad Times. This week we are joined by a returning guest and returning host, um, Cassie Dixon. Uh, say hi, Cassie. Hi everyone, it's good to be back. She's back, she's better than ever. <laughs> How are you doing, Cassie? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm okay, I'm okay. Uh, so, uh, those of you who don't know, Cassie was a master's graduate who did Victorian literature, art and culture, um, who has done various things with Borum and Latinsock. She played Rosalind in Love's Labour's Lost. She was the education and outreach officer for Shakespeare Society last year. Um, and she dramaturged not one, not two, but three shows. She did Massacre at Paris, Hamlet, and Measure for Measure. Um, so, You've had a very uh, long dramaturgical arc over the past year. Yes, I never expected to dramaturg all three productions last year. In on top of a master's degree, on top of my role in committee, but there, there I went and did everything. Yeah, you'd love to see it. Why not? Your undergrad degree, before going on to do your masters, I believe, was drama and creative writing. Yes. Um, so what interested you about choosing that particular undergrad course and what then led you on to wanting to do Victorian literature? Uh, so I was heavily involved with the drama department at my secondary school, especially when it came to the Shakespeare Schools Festival, which I believe became the Shakespeare Schools Foundation in 2016. Uh, for those of you who don't know what it is, it's basically the world's largest youth drama festival. Um, that just get uh, young children involved and um, l get them to better their skills and learn new things. And it's a, it's a, really, it's a really great project to be a part of. Um, so I always knew that I wanted to continue studying theatre as it was always a part of my life and upbringing. However, I also had a huge passion for creative written projects, the English language and etymology. Uh, because I'm, I'm a nerd. Um, so I knew, yep. <laughs> so I knew I didn't just want to choose a drama school because um, then I would have to give up English, which is why I ended up choosing a joint honours course where I could study both. Um, as for my MA, I think it was after one of my Shakespeare for Camera seminars where the idea formed in my head. I was having a chat with my course leader, Anessa Mankiewicz, and I don't remember the specifics of the conversation I think it was probably a one-to-one -one discussing feedback or reflection planning, um, but it was generally about Shakespeare and film and my interests. And I remember just coming away from it being so inspired to take my knowledge one step further. Um, studying Victorian literature, art and culture for my MA was more than just the typical English degree. It was marketed as an English degree, but it was so much more than that. It was art history, politics, sociology, geography, and pretty much every other socio-cultural aspect under the sun. I was able to explore the cultural aspects of Victorian artists and artistic movements while specialising in something that I loved. And ultimately that's why I chose, uh, uh, is why I chose it over a theatre-based MA. Even though I will always love performing and creating theatre, my love for history and writing ultimately won over. 
Fair, fair. No, that's that's really interesting. Um, I remember at my sick form, um, a couple of people I knew did the uh, Shakespeare Schools Festival. Oh, nice. Um, which is really good, yeah. Uh, shout out to Spalding High, if anyone from there is <laughs> listening. I doubt it, but if anyone is, shout out to you guys. Um, yeah, no, that that's incredible. So, as I also mentioned earlier, you dramaturged three shows last year, mm-hmm. which is insane. Um, what made you want to do dramaturgy, and what aspects of dramaturgy are you particularly drawn to? So... To be completely honest, when I was first asked to dramaturg, I wasn't a big fan of the role. Um, Much like the stigma surrounding it in the theatre world, I didn't see much of a need for it in the university setting because I thought, you know, it should be up to the actors to do their own research and for the directors to be knowledgeable enough on the subject they're writing about so that they don't need that extra person. Um, But I quickly found the advantage of having a dramaturg on board when it comes to Shakespeare and language and adapting Shakespeare. There's still such a barrier in terms of accessing Shakespearean language and lots of people are turned off of it from an early age in schools because of the way it's taught. If anybody listened to me last year, you know how much I hate how Shakespeare is taught in schools. And I think I bring this up at every opportunity, but I will bring it up again. There's just no joy in it. You know, I loved studying Shakespeare in my theatre classes at secondary school, but I absolutely hated it in my English classes. And that that's really telling and that that's my experience of it. And I'm sure that's a lot of other people's experience of it as well. And that's partly why I ended up taking the role of the dramaturg on initially, but also why I kept going back to it. I wanted to be able to help people on an individual basis to access that language whilst trying to tailor each person's progress to suit their ability like that, their current ability. Everybody will be at different stages in terms of how they understand Shakespeare. And there's no point in trying to teach somebody or help somebody one-to-one in, because everybody will, everybody works in different ways. Everybody learns in different ways. So there's no point in doing it the same way for everybody. And that's what I liked about being the dramaturg. You got to tailor your your teaching and your your helping in in different ways to suit the individual and that was that's what it was about just making them comfortable and as for the aspects of dramaturgy that i was drawn to i think primarily as i said getting the opportunity to help bridge that gap and make the language more accessible and understandable for actors but also the history nerd in me just loves looking at all that historical context and has a great time running away with it and imagining it in different time periods and settings. You love to see it. You love to see it. Um, so we we are actually going to be switching up the episode formula episode slightly because the next however long we're going to be ranting about this for, um, we're going to be coming up with a concept for a show. So, uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, particularly if you are a first year, uh, we have our first year show coming up. This is an opportunity for first years trying to put bits together um, for most likely their first time to get involved with the society and pitch for a show. Um, We are going to try and attempt this now. Um, So I've got three random wheel generators up on my screen. Um, Because we just have one graphic on the entire time, I'm not going to show you them live. Just trust that I do 
legit have three random wheel generators. Cassie can vouch for me. We'd literally set this up together before recording. <laughs> um, so for the remainder of the episode, we are going to attempt to discuss the idea of a concept evolving around three things. I'll, I'll first of all, I'll explain what the wheels are. So the first wheel contains a bunch of Shakespeare plays. Uh, we are just keeping them to Shakespeare plays just for simplicity's sake. But we as Shakespeare Society also accept Shakespeare contemporary plays, which if you don't know what those are, look them up. There's quite a lot of them. Um, the second wheel uh, contains a bunch of genres, time periods, stuff like that. Um, and the third wheel is a wild card. These are things that we want to do specifically with this concept in mind that we have to adhere to. Uh, these can be things like uh, changing the role of a main character, cutting a main character out entirely, or throwing a wild card like halfway through the play. Um, the time period changes or something changes. Um, and we've got to try and make that work. So this could be the most... I'm not going to swear. This could be the most insane thing, most impractical thing we come up with. But we're going to try it anyway. We're going to try semi-live on this recording. It's live for this recording to pitch this together. So, okay. I'm going to need to make a note of this. So, right. This may be cut. Okay, I'm going to spin the first wheel. What's our play going to be? Drum roll. Okay. So our play is Twelfth Night. Amazing. So that's our play, and that's one you know, so that's even better. So we can delete this entire wheel. Right. We're now going to spin the genre's time periods wheel. Oh. Oh, okay. Okay. We have horror. Oh. We're doing a horror twelfth night. If we got zombie apocalypse. Horror horror twelfth night. Horror twelfth night. Right. So our third and final wheel. What's it gonna be? What's it gonna be? I'm in suspense. Okay. 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 So the final wild card is that a main character is cut from the play, which actually kind of works because it's horror. Um, mm -hmm. So just to refresh, our play is Twelfth Night, our genre is horror, and our wild card to make in this concept is a main character is cut from the play. That's really interesting. I've never really thought about horror being associated with Twelfth Night before. So I think with the horror element, you can go with two ways. One, you can go with comedy horror, uh, which could be a really interesting concept, actually, and something you don't really see with Shakespeare, um, off the top of my head anyway. Or you can really lean into the horror side of things. I'm thinking primarily of like gothic horror or psychological horror, which thinking about the themes of Twelfth Night can actually work because you've got doppelgangers. 
that that really lends itself to the surreal and the horror element so if you're going with the wild card of a character not being there in the play uh, being cut you could look at sebastian being cut and instead instead of it being twins it being viola just as the single person but having like a sp either split personality or there's some sort of doppelganger ghost action happening but it's it's either her playing both either the you know the the actor or um the character is is being both parts or um there's something about the character you know she's being haunted she believes her brother is still alive in the play and you, you may keep that concept for the horror element but instead actually lean into the fact that Sebastian did die. He, he did drown. He, he isn't a part of the, the rest of the play. Um, and Viola may know this on some level and instead compensate for that by like dressing up as him or something. And that can lean into her guise as Cesario, but also could explain why people are mistaking her for her brother and thinking that you know they're actually interacting with Sebastian and in those scenes where Sebastian has been in and interacting with with other characters it could be Viola actually as Sebastian does that make sense it's very it makes the Twelfth Night even more convoluted um but that's a really interesting concept like what what do you think I yeah I I completely agree. I think with the horror element, because I I know Twelfth Night to some extent. I I understand why I've seen like two productions of it, and it's what the first year show in my first year would have been, because mm -hmm. it would have been Twelfth Night, um, and that was like a nineteen twenties Gatsby style Twelfth Night, which is, okay. which is interesting. But um, I think. Because horror can kind of lend itself to any particular setting. You could lean on, like, um, modern horrors, or you could, if you wanted to, because horror leaves it open to so many historical settings. Yeah. Like, the scene with Malvolio, because that's in, like, a garden, I think. Mm. You could set that on, like, a big kind of manor or big estate. And kind of build the horror supernatural elements around that. Yeah. Um, whether you choose to, you know, because doppelgangers, as you said, I think are a really good way to kind of bring the elements of sort of disguise and kind of madness in. I think mm. that would work really well. Um, the torment of Malvolo is also something you could really look into. If you wanted to focus or base it around Malvolio and have everything from his point of view, which would be interesting in a stage production's point of view, but it's, um, it, with horror, you can, you could lean into that psychological and physical torment. Yeah. Cause it would change the nature of whether, as you said, whether you make it a dark comedy or you choose to focus on purely the horror element. It's like take, or you could just take out all of the comedy, like we yeah. did for measure. Um, yeah. To kind of link it back to something I do know somewhat about. <laughs> um, when we did Measure for Measure, which of course you were dramatizing on for that, we wanted to really focus on how bad the uh, treatment of Isabella was from the Duke. And the way we showed this was, you know, we made it a crime documentary. 
to kind of highlight the Duke, the highlight Angelo. Yeah, it was, it was an expose of the Me Too movement based around the exploitation of wealthy figures and how they abuse their power. And I think that, as you said, that really lent itself to an exploration of Isabella's character. No, absolutely. And the process behind that took a lot of kind of brainstorming because we we had to, we kind of had two different not two different players going on but two different things going on we had the we had the uh historical uh, original shakespeare text for the flashback scenes and then we had uh modern text for the interviews which we like the three of us me meadow and you wrote um and that came in order to write that you really had to understand what had gone on prior in order to like get yeah. into the characters heads to write that um the same to bring this back to our twelfth night horror concept um you know i think understanding the key to forming any dramatological concept and it's something which yeah as i i might keep this in but as something i've said you did a lot more about twelfth night than i do mm -hmm. um so key thing is understanding your play yeah. uh and second of all once you fully understood your play and you're able to play around with the bricks of the play you could kind of form it however you want um and you can practically lend itself to anything um so what else do you think could be done with 12th night horror um on top of what we've built so far I think there is a lot to play with with those two concepts on their own and to be honest I wouldn't suggest doing both of them. Here, here's, the, here's the thing about dramaturgy and also adapting Shakespeare, if you want to do a wild card like this you need to really f hone in on one thing because you could look at this concept and say oh Oh, doppelgangers. Okay, yep, yep. Uh, missing character. Cool. Yeah, we can really play into the psychological aspects of Viola and explore how that affects all the other characters. But then you could also look at, oh, wait, Malvolio is actually really mistreated in this play. So he's the only character we can really lean into with psychological and, and physical torment. And, and we could do something with that. But if you look at both of them at the same time in the same production, that's way too cluttered. You know, you, you've, you don't know what you're saying, like, what's your message? What are, you, what are you trying to do? So when you're really coming up with a concept, you need to think about what is going to serve your directorial concept and your themes that you want to put on, your chosen themes from the play. What will serve you more? Um, and it could be that you end up choosing the one that you didn't initially want to do to begin with, but it's at the end of the day, it's what fits in with the text. And sometimes what you really want to do just can't fit in with the text that well. Um, I mean, if you, if you take the idea of a character being missing and the horror genre to any other um, drama that Shakespeare wrote, like Hamlet or even King Lear, any, any, any other of the historical ones, Macbeth, you know, um, because of the internalized psychological themes that are explored anyway within those plays, the horror genre will work so, so well 
in those aspects. My my ideal concept, I think, would be like a, a German expressionistic psychological thriller of Hamlet or something, because that it it's so internal. It's so internalized. Um, everything within that play and the psychological elements are amazing and the German expressionistic um, elements, the genre elements just just work so well with with that as well. Um, but again with comedy it's it's hard. So if you were to so if you were to keep the comedy horror side of things, let's let's look at that. What Theo, what would you what would you go with? Because I, I, I have no idea. Oh god. Um I think if you're trying to change a comedy to fit a genre which it completely isn't, um I'd say make the full switch go horror. Because you can have I mean in Macbeth, for instance, like that's purely a tragedy, but there are comedic elements or they can mm. be moments of comedy in a tragedy. Um, I just remember when I did Coriolanus back in my first year, there's one scene between the two tribunes, um, where Brutus is like, I don't like this news, and the way that it was delivered got laughs every night. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's one of those things, I think, definitely what you were saying earlier about, um, knowing the play inside out, focusing on one specific thing. Because there's always a danger with a lot of concepts to focus on too much and it just becomes yeah. very hard to follow exactly what you're trying to do. But no, it's it's always this thing of like, knowing your play inside out, being able to justify the choices that you've made, and yeah, just being able to really kind of focus on that one idea or whichever idea you end up going with. Yeah and really kind of seeing it to its full potential. I think that's exactly it. You don't want to have your chosen play and force it into a genre that it just won't fit into. And I think it's a, it's a learning pro learning process and everyone who will be focusing on trying to get a bid together will go through this exact same process. Maybe not with the, the wheel generator, but like they'll sit down and think, okay, I want to do this play. Let's see if it fits into this genre. Oh, well, it kind of does, but it doesn't. Oh, that's a, that's a shame. We're going to have to shelf that and think of something else. That's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just something that you need to talk about and bounce ideas off of. And it's a really fun process because, like I said earlier, you might end up doing something completely different to what you initially envisioned, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. A bad thing. No, of course, of course. Um, I actually had a concept for Macbeth that I came up with last year. It never got anywhere just because of timing and everything, but it was going to be a 1920s kind of noir-style Macbeth. Um, the three witches were going to be these jazz club singers, and their prophecies were going to be like conveyed through like old-timey jazz numbers, mm -hmm. or it would have been like postmodern jukebox-style rewrites, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that kind of that kind of thing. Uh, Malcolm is going to be um, like female, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and it's this idea that when it came to the whole scene with Duncan sort of uh, giving Malcolm like the throne, all. Uh, saying, oh yeah, Malcolm's going to inherit after me. Um, Macbeth would 
just be more kind of you would see Duncan as being a soft figure at that point mm, yeah. which would then kind of leave him to drive even further into kind of wanting to get him later down the line um, and it was going to be set in a like it was going to focus on police corruption um, but uh, in that sense there's a lot going on yeah, and yeah. for me it was just timing and I never really got started on mm -hmm, it but mm -hmm. I think developing the idea further and actually like sitting down and mm -hmm, looking mm -hmm. at the logistics knowing what i know now yeah, yeah i think realistically probably focusing on one or two of those ideas and kind of seeing where it goes yeah, yeah. i think you know would be really well and speaking of macbeth this is a cheeky self-advertisement <laughs> uh tickets are on sale ooh, ooh. i play macbeth uh come and see it <laughs> Um, we've cut the witches. That's why you should come and see it. We've cut the witches. You want to know how we cut the witches? Come and see it. It's their wild card. Their wild card. We cut the witches. Um, but yeah, no, it's been a really fun process to work on. And uh, the cast and crew have been incredible. So please, please come and see it. Um, that'd be good. Um, as I plugged earlier, Macbeth. Come and see Macbeth. Um, if you're interested in kind of learning a bit more about dramaturgy and maybe even having a go at like rewriting stuff or pitching ideas, uh, I'm running an academic discussion this Tuesday. Um, it's a Marvel one. Um, part two. Part two, yeah. It's inspired by uh, Marvel's What If series, but looking at different scenes and events from uh, Shakespeare plays and essentially coming up with um kind of looking at the alternate scenarios and kind of seeing how they would play out also having a go at like writing or pitching stuff to go for specific ideas um if that's something you'd be interested in come along on tuesday should be a good time we have a sword fighting workshop on thursday uh run by the wonderful image and small come along to that that'd be really cool and I think that's everything. That's everything. Finally, before we end off today's episode, uh, do you have any tips for people wanting to explore dramaturgy or become more confident with understanding Shakespeare? I do, yes. Um, so with dramaturgy, do your research. As we've been saying throughout this play, uh, this play, let me start that again. <laughs> Um, yes, I do. Uh, so with dramaturgy, basically, as we've been saying, do your research. You need to know your play inside out. If you're on board, you also need to know your chosen setting, like the back of your hand. Uh, if you're changing characters to fit the setting, you have to be able to stand up and justify how and why these changes work to fit the themes or directorial concept you're running with. And overall, just being someone who can support cast and crew when needed and be that extra pair of eyes and ears. So if you if you like being that and you want to be helpful to the process, then I would I would say um, that would help not only the team, but the, the process of making the piece of theatre in general. Um, my advice for anyone wanting to be more confident with Shakespeare, and this rolls over to dramaturgy as well, is to find a presentation or form of Shakespeare that you actually enjoy and then go from there. 
if that's starting with adaptations like West Side Story, The, the Lion King, or even Nomeo and da 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 da, I'm gonna start that again. <laughs> <laughs> if that's starting with adaptations like West Side Story, The Lion King, or even my personal favourite, and I hope you know I'm being sarcastic here, but I know a lot of people love it, Nomeo and Juliet, then you know what, there's nothing wrong with that if it makes you happy and engaged with the story and the themes and the characters. There's a reason why Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet and 10 Things I Hate About You have endured, not just as pieces of cinema, but as adaptations of Shakespeare. It's because those core themes of the original plays have been so easily transposed into modern day settings that contemporary audiences will actually understand. And I think that's the key to accessing the language, finding that universality within the text and transforming it into settings that your audience will recognize and be able to reflect upon. And many filmmakers and many theater makers have done this, but because there's such a stigma around learning Shakespeare and the Shakespearean language, starting from an early age in schools, those people who didn't enjoy it in schools will probably not be aware of these fantastic adaptations that explore different cultures, different marginalized groups and such, and they're really missing out on what Shakespeare can actually be. Um, I'd also recommend looking into modern day language translations, um, as well as stage adaptations that aren't strictly traditional, like some of the, the Globe productions, for example, because um, they, they can do traditional and they can do not very non-traditional ones, more so in the last couple of years. Um, but there's nothing more off-putting for like a younger person getting into Shakespeare or being taught Shakespeare than having to sit through three hours of Laurence Olivier in tights performing Hamlet when, you know, you could be watching like Leonardo DiCaprio uh, smoking on the beach, you know, not to blaspheme against Olivier, you know, I love the man, but he was very much a, a Shakespearean purist at the end of the day. And that's not a great gateway into Shakespeare for a lot of people. Um, so yeah, my advice would be to explore all the different adaptations of Shakespeare that you can, crossing the genres, film, song, dance, stage, books too, actually. There's, there's a big trend right now of authors taking classical works, like um, looking at women from Greek mythology and giving them their own voice that they never had um, in these new neoclassical retellings of these classic myths. And the same is happening with Shakespearean women too. Um, so definitely, I would say, look for the forms and the genres that will interest you because you want to be able to engage with the text in its purest, simplest form before tackling anything else. If you're not having fun with it, then it's not worth your time and, you know, everyone deserves to have fun with it. Yeah, no, that's, that's great. That's, that's great advice. Thanks so much, Cassie. And thank you very much for coming on to Bard Times once again. No worries. It's, it's been really good coming back and seeing how my baby's growing. <laughs> oh, you love to see it. You love to see it. Thank you very much for tuning in to this episode of Bard Times. I've been your host, Theo Dudridge, and in the words of the Bard himself, better a witty fool than a foolish wit. Take care, everyone. <laughs>